I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this is Clockworks, a Legion podcast. We have a special episode of Clockworks for you this week. We have an interview with Denny Gordon. She is the director of episode seven of Legion. I was, I was unfortunately not able to be here at this ep- for this interview because I had to work, but uh, I was excited to hear Paul and we'll talk more at, after the interview is over about my thoughts on what she has to say. But for now, just enjoy uh, hearing about episode seven from Denny Gordon. So Denny Gordon, welcome here and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're so excited. Uh, you guys like the show. I've loved the show all the way through, and we're really excited to be talking about it uh, in general and with you now. Fantastic. You know, when we when we started the show, it was no there was no certainty, of course, on uh, how the audience would, would how the how the core fans and how the audience would uh, would spark to it. So. Right. Um, Everyone's just been over the moon about the excitement, and uh, I think we're doing 10 next season. That's great. So, That's so really good. off we go. I mean, I can say the first episode, uh, one of the things that I, my wife and I, who unfortunately can't, uh, couldn't be here for the interview, and she's disappointed about that, but one of the things that we found that the very first episode was uh, an episode of television where neither of us felt any uh, desire to reach for our phones to look away at all, and that's you know kind of unusual. <laughs> uh, well, so, yes, it's so compelling you, and you might miss a detail. And I have to say, uh, episode seven, which you directed, is my favorite of the episodes in first season. I really, I really love uh, that episode. Thank um, you, thank you. It was so much fun to do. I wanted to start by asking, uh, in general, do you watch? TV shows that you make, and specifically Legion, like, do you then watch the show? You know, Legion was a new show, and there was nothing to watch. So um, all I had was Noah's script when I first met Noah. And they came to me, you know, many months before they started shooting the show. And, um, but the script was so evocative. And, you know, you can imagine even in its written form that it was already so haunting and so compelling and um the need to know what was happening with david was so strong but the imagery that 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 noah put in the script was uh it really spoke to me so even not having uh seen a frame of footage because they were editing the pilot i was able to do an image i'm a commercial director so i did an image board of my own and brought it in to share with Noah and John Cameron, the producer, and Lauren Schuler Donner, the other producer. And it was rather uncanny because we had some of the same images. And it was like Noah and I did a Vulcan mind melding. We thought, okay, we're thinking the same way. We're speaking the same language. But to answer your question, um, frequently, because I'm so busy and there's so much great content, I didn't have time to... Um, I normally don't have time. I was hired to direct an episode of Bloodline, and I had to hurry up and you know catch up on the entire season right. in the same way. So um, I love to study the episodes before I get on set and to really you know understand what we're attempting to accomplish. I mean, and that's one of the questions, uh, the related question you've partially answered right there, but is about you know I I know you um, often will direct an episode of an ongoing uh, series. And I was curious about how that works as a director of a single episode or 
two or three or uh do you watch the whole series as preparation for the episode do you how do you how does it work to be the director of an episode coming into a show in general well, I think you know I always love to make connection with the showrunner with the writers and just say what what are the episodes that for you were like really essential right. in the arc of the show that that that, che- that checked all the boxes for you that was visually thrilling that was uh, emotionally compelling you know really understand what what their favorite are because sometimes it's you know you don't have time to watch 30 episodes but you can catch up by by getting inside the head of the writers that way in Legion in particular, like you just said, you um, had the script. Did you have the script? Uh, at what stage of completion was the script of the ep- of the seventh episode when you saw it? Was it completely as it was? Was it still in the process? How does it work with Legion specifically with the episode you directed? Well, by the time I came on 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 set for episode seven they were filming episode six and okay. I was able to look at the dailies for all the previous episodes, which was very, very compelling. And also to hear from Noah about what he was liking and part of the joy of this project and working with Noah Hawley, who's, you know, clearly a, a, a brilliant mind was that he was encouraging the filmmakers to be bold. Right. And he was encouraging, you know, the filmmakers to really color outside the lines. And uh, so when we got seven, um, you know, what you do is you meet with the director of photography and they do all, they, there are two of them on uh, a show like Legion, yeah. the prepping DP and the shooting DP. So mm-hmm. you have a chance to start talking about the imagery. So Dana Gonzalez, uh, Emmy Award winning, fantastic uh, director of photography was mine and Michael Wiley, the production designer and Jonathan Ross, the visual effects supervisor. We put our heads together because Noah was busy writing eight and creating, you know, season two, the next season of Fargo and, you know, his next novel and his next movie. And uh, so we were, you know, we they're all very good at getting inside Noah's head. I learned to, to get inside Noah's head with them. We were working to connect the dots. We were working to say, what do you think he means here? Well, let's try this. It's a it's a it's a kind of a, a odyssey <laughs> that you go on this journey with all the other creative partners to sort of say what is this moment and of course you're dealing with schizophrenia yeah. possibly <laughs> so you're dealing with you know what is real and we're blurring the lines between what is real and you know what's imagined and it's a pretty it's a pretty rich canvas for a filmmaker but it's it's a it's a very fun way to sort of take the viewers on a journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the journey of episode seven was fantastic. Uh, the journey of the se- uh, the journey of the series has been fantastic. Um, Good. Good. On still on practical terms, just um, how much time does it take one for you as a director? What's your total time commitment to one episode of Legion? Um, let's see. I. Uh... I uh, went up to Vancouver while Michael Uppendahl, one of the executive producers, was directing because I wanted to get the lay of the land. And right. a lot of a lot of the guys on the crew were friends of mine from other projects. And so um, the AD, uh, Corey Faulkner, said, study the episode. Just watch, watch, watch. He said, it's, it's so layered and so complex. Watch as much as you can. Watch every daily that you can so that when you land and you start directing – 
you have all of that in your head. And that turned out to be uh, fantastic advice. So specifically the time, I mean, I did that on my own time to go to really see that. And then a lot of prep on my own before I landed in Vancouver. And then once in Vancouver, it was about uh, two and a half, maybe three weeks of prep and about um, eight days of shooting. Okay. So uh, it, it, it seems short, but it's, uh, you know, every minute is every minute is uh, chock full of visualizing and storyboarding and right. dreaming, I mean, <laughs> mostly dreaming. And that's, I mean, one of the reasons I asked that question is exactly what you said. I would have imagined that um, you start working and thinking about it before you have officially started working, that is being on set, right? You as you said, you do a lot of thinking and preparing, and it's a uh, it's a little bit similar. I am uh, in my day job. I'm an academic, and one of the things that I do writing academic uh, uh, work is hours and hours of what looks like staring at a computer doing staring at a blank computer screen doing nothing, and then I can sit down and write something. And yes, I suspect yes. I I was wondering, and I suspect there's a similar kind of by the time you're on set, you already must have a very clear vision of what you're going to be doing when you're there. Is that right? Hopefully we still, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully there was still, you know, and we'll get into it later when we talk about the silent movie thing, but yeah, you know, there's always um, surprises on the journey. Like, Oh, that didn't work. Or, Oh, uh, I know what we want to accomplish here, but we don't have the techno, you know, we don't have that tool today. So, you know, every day is some kind of new adventure in terms of what we dreamt up and uh, in tandem with what we, uh, you know, what we can actually accomplish. Right. So Legion in general is a very surreal and psychedelic show. And this uh, episode seven in particular, I mean, it's possibly the most surreal uh, episode yet. Are you a fan of psychedelic art in general? You know, I guess the best way to answer that is to say I'm a, I'm a fan of visuals that take you on a journey and I guess it's like dropping a tab of acid in some ways <laughs> um yeah. it's it's I, you know I I always approach it from a visual perspective right. and um once I had the sets in my head um then 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 you can start to trip off on invention like that astral plane in seven that all white psych that we created and letting it letting the images blow out as we did um, you know, that was just an invention between myself, the DP, Dana, and and Michael Wiley, the production designer. We wanted everything. We wanted that astral plane to just be a gigantic, blown-out white space, as memories sometimes are. Yeah, I, I love that uh, scene, by the way, the visual of the white that seems infinite with just one little red box in the middle and the sense of <laughs> space created by that, by the, as you say, the blown-out white visuals the blown out white space that seems to go on forever. And it provides this real sense of both this being a safe space for them to be, but also it being a completely expansive infinite and the, the little red box in the middle that seems tiny because of how huge the white space seems. I was right. very visually uh, appealing shot and scene. Wonderful. Um, and it, I mean, when I talk about psychedelic, I mean, I hope, uh, that in I hope that our listeners and that in general the psychedelic in terms of dropping an acid I don't think is as yeah. interesting as exactly what you were saying about psychedelic art 
Uh, one of the things that's so appealing about Legion and what's so appealing about psychedelic art for me as a viewer is exactly what you say about visuals that are packed with meaning and significance, and they're not necessarily um, straightforward. They require some thought and some uh, unpacking on the part of the viewer. Yes, yes. Is that a kind of visual that you are drawn to? Absolutely. And, in, and, and you know, it, it, in, t in terms of the script, sometimes it was, it was, it, it, it sprang from an emotional idea, like the white space is sort of terrifying in its infiniteness. Yep. And uh, you feel extremely uneasy. Um, but yes, there was this one little safe, tube and we thought of it was like those 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 old school tubes you know like those old male tubes right like this silent little space where they could have this real conversation so sometimes those images spring from what feels like what's emotionally right um we did a lot of imagery that you know didn't make it into the episode as well because we were just exploring and you know going mad we had one astral plane that we really loved which was all white, but just a black mound of dirt, a, a, a dirt in the middle with this black tree, uh, didn't end up making it into the episode. But always kind of inventing a universe that would sort of take the moment and turn it on its head and take it in a different way. Because in, in the same way that the audience doesn't know half the time whether it's real or not, sometimes us, those of us <laughs> creating aren't so sure either. Right. So sometimes we're just satisfying our desire to do like, oh, that's a really cool thing. I've always wanted to do that. And we're going to do it here today. I and mean, one of the things I've read in an interview that uh, Noah Hawley said about the series is, uh, I don't need you to understand it. I just need you to experience it. Is that yes. something that rings true for you also? For all of us. Absolutely. And it was true for the cast. It was true. You know, sometimes the actors would ask questions and we wouldn't have solid, crisp answers. Right. You know, we needed to just say, just be in the moment, trust the moment. What's real today? What's real right now? And and let that be our guide. But we, we were on that same experiential journey. Uh, you know, Noah created this amazing playground. And we were all just privileged to play in that playground, even though we didn't always know where we were going or what the result was going to be. Um, um, so your episode is striking for, especially for having these three stylized sections that break from the uh, style so far of Legion. I mean, yes. such as it is, it's already a show that is, uh, as you say, pushing the stylist stylistic boundaries all over the place but the three sections in episode seven specifically are the chalkboard animation sequence the uh zombie style chase sequence when the mental patients are chasing uh carry uh amber mid thunder carry down the hallways and it is just like a zombie movie and the uh silent film sequence so I have specific questions about each one of these, but before we get to them, can you talk at all about the idea behind shifting the visual language throughout the episode? I think that it, you know, Noah is is probably one of the most visual writers I've ever worked with, and he he wants us to just trip out on on what is possible. You know, he whether it's black and white or whether it's overexposed. You know, in a in a white white world, whether we pull out the sound, he's just game to experience. To, to, to take you on a journey in, in so many different ways. And so it was probably the most fun thing I've ever done for that reason. And no one wouldn't always say, this is what I see and this is what I want. It was up to us. Right. So th those, those three sections, and there's a very interesting different story behind each of those three sections about how we arrived at it. 
All right. Well, well why don't we start then with the chalkboard animation? If there's yes. an interesting story, uh, how did you arrive at that chalkboard animation section? That was always scripted. Uh, Noah always saw that as, you know, David, you know, David, we had to really understand the style of the animation, but it was us working very closely with an animation uh, company here in Los Angeles called Floyd County. But as scripted, it's, it's, it's a series of revelations on David's part. And it's, of course, everyone watching the show has been waiting for all of these things to fit together. So uh, a classroom with a chalkboard and someone's kind of guiding you through it. It was sort of like we were in, a little inspired by A Beautiful Mind. Yep. We were inspired by the idea of, uh, you know, a, a, a genius um, calculus, uh, you know, being being kind of all made into one whole. Um, Noah, so Noah wrote, the, wrote that script, wrote that scene exactly as, as you ended up seeing it. But what had to be determined were so many details. Uh we had a nine panel blackboard. What, what animation was going to go where? Right. And I very much wanted it to build. It was a long scene. It's like a six minute scene, probably one of the longest in the series. And what was going to be on each of those nine panels at all times? And how does it build? And I wanted a library step that, that as things start to come together, David excitedly runs up. And this makes sense. Uh, Dan Stevens had to launch the animations because that first baby that he drew had to be in the style of where we were going. So there was just tremendous discussion. And did Dan Uh, draw that first uh, baby himself? Dan drew the first baby (laughs) and then the style, you know, then the animators took off and we wanted it to be just continually alive as his, as his brain is firing on all cylinders as he's as he's piecing everything together, so we were thrilled with the final result. Um, but at the you know we didn't have any of the an, real animations at the time that I was filming it, so it was you know so I had to it was very challenging. We were doing motion control obviously to go from David's rational British mind to David at the blackboard and his revelations and you know, how to make that interesting for six minutes and all the different angles that that would be. And I kept David rational mind, Brit, jumping all around this classroom yeah, um, to show that he was omnipresent, you know, that he was never going anywhere. He was always going to be there speaking to the other David. I noticed the way that the, I mean, as you said, it builds through the scene that it starts with just one panel of the blackboard and then it moves to two and three and it expands and by the end it's a single animation taking up all the nine panels of the uh, blackboard and that I think was was very effective for uh, visualizing this idea of expanding his understanding and expanding his sense of what is happening as well as expanding the audience's sense of what's happening. Yes and so many people contributed to the success of that scene but I drew I drew it on storyboards uh, initially with an artist in Vancouver and then we started going back and forth between Noah and the animation company, uh, Floyd County. And between between the team of us, you know, I, I mean, it was my idea to let that final image be gigantic and large. And um, I'm so glad that they embraced that because it just felt right. You know, that yeah. image was just, you know, overtaking him. Absolutely. Um, and frankly, in any other episode... I think that animation sequence would be the standout moment of the episode. Uh, In this episode, the silent, the the only possible 
thing that casts any shadow on that episode is how the silent film section overshadows it. That, that is a phenomenal and fantastic s- sequence. And can you tell me a bit about that uh, silent film section? Well, this is an interesting story. Um, it was not scripted as a silent movie uh, no. scene. And uh, Noah had only said two words to me about what he wanted to be going on in that clockworks hallway. And those two words were horror film. So, you know, that's all you have to say to a team like ours. And, you know, we're off, but, um, we, you know, we, and then you have an actress like, uh, Aubrey Plaza playing Lenny and, you know, naturally it's going to go in a sort of a Beetlejuice direction. So we had all these elements and, um, it was not, working <laughs> frankly when we got into post it was between between what was happening in that hallway between david trying to get out of his coffin and and you know burst through and save his his team frozen in time in his right. bedroom i mean there was a lot going on and it it was it was blurring a, a, a sort of a more straightforward version of the hallway which we had shot i mean believe me it was not straightforward it was straightforward <laughs> legion style but um that it wasn't you know it wasn't a silent movie. It wasn't arch. It wasn't its own sort of different stylistic, discrete moment. And uh, it was sort of blurring the episode. It was not, it was not as crisp. It was not as powerful as we knew we needed it to be because it's so everything's escalating. Everything's building. So it was Noah's idea. We, you know, we got into, we, we, this, the episode had been cut together for, you know, several weeks, but that one section was still gnawing at him and, um, you know, to his enormous credit and the team's credit, we were able to go back and take that material and add those cards. And it was such a great idea because by pulling out the sound, it was so much more terrifying by pulling out the sound because we had all the sound of the screaming and the, you know, the, the zombies and everything that Lenny was saying. And it just, put it on its own its own astral plane as it were but this is part of the it, it, it's, it's a discovery it wasn't happening it, you know it wasn't it wasn't designed to be that way initially so it was hold on it was shot with all the sound you didn't reshoot it as a silent film you re-edited it into a silent film is that right exactly wow that's it was it was shot as a as a normal scene it was shot you know with all the actors, Rachel, Amber, uh, Mackenzie, everybody speaking their speaking dialogue. And then, you, but I think, and, and then, then we put, put in and, the, and then it was created okay. entirely in post. Wow, that's um, that's maybe even more amazing because it yes. ends up looking fantastic, and the visuals, like the black and white, and the way that the the camera angles are reminiscent of German expressionist film. I mean. I'm not a film scholar by any means, but I have seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caglieri and uh, yes. The Man Who Laughs, and it visually it resembles those silent films. Like it, it seems like a reference to those silent films already. It's amazing to me that that was then uh, an additional element added to it. Well, I think the film language that we were, you know, that I was speaking in that hallway, uh, you know, was. You, you know, you probably could call it German expressionism. So, you know, it was it was low angled yep. and it was 
um, which, which, which felt really right because Lenny has, Lenny is so powerful. So it was shot that way for story and for emotional purposes. Right. Um, and it was, but, but, you know, they're, they're speaking real lines. I mean, those moments were all rendered as a, as a, you know, actual series of, of, of moments. So to Norma, to, you know, to know his incredible, um, you know, with his mind, he, he just visually, and I know how he just like, let's try this. Right. Let's try this. Right. What happens if, and the first time he popped it on us, we were all like, what? Wow. <laughs> um, but that's part of the joy of the creative process, you know? So now, you know, our secret. Wow. I mean, it paid off enormously. It is a fantastic sequence of thrilled. We were all so thrilled with the way it turned out. Right. Um, you talked, part of me wants to just keep talking about the silent film section, but I don't know what else I have to specifically say, but you talked, um, a second ago about horror was the one note that, uh, you went into that sequence with, um, so that's the other element of this episode that's stylistically distinct from the kind of set style of Legion is the real horror film uh, feel of, I mean, there have been horror film elements in throughout Legion, but uh, the, specifically the zombie film uh, elements of the chasing uh, Amber Midthunder down the hallway and then the reference to they live with the glasses yes. that they put yes. on and see the real reality why so why the horror movie touchstone what's the uh rationale behind that i think i can imagine but you, can you talk a bit about that well i think uh from our from the story perspective uh, i think there's some sort of the, the the nightmares that we all have deep in our limbic brain the the, the terrors that are always lurking there you know, we wanted to manifest that, you know, these, these, these sort of the worst imaginings are, are coming for David and everyone are coming to be true. And it's all coming, it's all coalescing. And so zombies just felt like, uh, you know, zombies and they live just felt, it just felt right. It just right. felt in terms of, and in terms of what um, Sid is able to do with the glasses and able to fight her way through, because it, as with everything else in this, series people are fighting the rational and the irrational sides of their brain and what's real and what's not real so uh they they live in those zombies i mean i was influenced by 28 days later right uh, and you know to take the clockworks patients and turn them into zombies was um something that we were all very excited about it just it it, it just felt right you know it's i remember there was the story that walter murch steven spielberg's editor the first time that those two great talents came together and spielberg said why did you do it that way walter and walter said well it just felt right <laughs> <laughs> and that was the case in so many instances for this episode right is that also the case i mean is the when sid puts on the glasses or any of them put on the glasses and the we see through her point of view and everything turns black and white from color. There's such use. I mean, the use of color throughout the series, but the use of color in this episode is very striking. And um, we already talked about the white with the red pillar. That's mm -hmm. an example. The way that the, the clockworks tends to be really red filtered. Uh, and then they put on the glasses and it all goes black and white. What, why the black and white? Well, I think we wanted to we wanted to be be very clear with the audience about what was what was real and what wasn't, and you know, re real and what wasn't in you know in the Legion world is a, is a you know a thesis topic for someone. <laughs> right. 
uh, at some university, perhaps yours, uh, somewhere. But it just felt, again, it just felt right that there's that there's the color and then the black and white. And the black and white, um, Noah had Noah had always written that when the glasses came, you know, the up and down, that there would be black and white, and then there would be color. We shot everything in color, but we were very clear in our minds about what moments would be black and white. Right. And I think it's just such a it's such an evocative way to cue the audience different world different different plane because black and white i mean at the same time what you said about uh real and unreal in legion being up for grabs being unclear black and white to signify what's real is such a complicated um symbolically because on one hand, there's a visual language that says this is different from what you've seen before. This is something, and because it's black and white, there's less, I mean, to be really literalist about it, there's less nuance. There's, it's the real thing in black and white. But on the other hand, of course, the way that we experience the world is in color. So black and white is always more artificial than color because we don't experience our real worlds in color, right? Right. Right. The opposite would have been maybe an obvious <laughs> way to go. So this being Legion, we had to flip it one more time. Right. So in addition to the horror movie elements that made this probably the scariest episode of Legion, uh, there's also quite a bit of comedy in this episode, uh, making it probably the funniest episode of Legion at the same time. Can you talk a bit about uh, Jermaine Clement and Bill Irwin and their scene in the Ice Cube? I mean, they're two talented comic actors Bill Irwin has had uh has been great throughout Legion uh dramatically but he's been the source of a lot of the comedy uh up till now you talk a bit about Jermaine Clement and Bill Irwin together in that ice cube um well you can imagine it was like uh, I mean I felt so privileged to be in that ice cube with them uh you know to I'm such fans of both of them and we really wanted that scene to and Noah very much when we toned the episode he said you know like the un, unearth it for the comedy every molecule of comedy that it, it, that you can get and my background is improv comedy and Lewis Black used to be my improv partner and we we didn't really talk that much about it they're such instinctive comics right you know it, all it was like for me to say to Jermaine I think you know, how about more confusion there? Because Jermaine's whole, I mean, Oliver is is not remembering everything. Oliver is sort of crystallized in the 60s. He's trying, he's got a, you know, he's got a record player and a turntable and he can't remember if his wife is Asian or not. He, he, he's searching for words that he can't find. And he says it was all a little bit, I don't know, dishes. Yeah. You know, he's, he's just, so, you know, Jermaine just embraced that so completely. And and so there, but there are revelations on both sides. I mean, Bill, that's where Bill figures out about the Shadow King. Of course, of course, the Shadow King, the dog. Um, so you know, we we had variations of performance, but but we were all really enjoying the subtle comedy, and we wanted to, you know, I think that that's what's so fun about a show like this is that it does turn on a dime from being terrifying to, you know, remarkably remarkably funny because. Well, it's like Beckett, you know, Bill Irwin is the great Beckett interpreter, and uh, I'm a Beckett fan and a Beckett scholar, and we would, you know, no, nothing is funnier than unhappiness was what Beckett always said, and um, we 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 embrace that completely. And there's a, I mean, is it 
significant. I said a second ago, the scariest episode and the funniest episode. Is it significant that those two things happen at the same time in the same episode? I would, I would think that both horror and comedy are about the audience's emotional vulnerability. So the more scared they are, the more funny they're going to find things. And the more funny they find things, the more scared they're going to be, because both of those are means of decreasing the audience's emotional resistance to the episode. Exactly, exactly. And it isn't like life. It's like you can look at this through, what's the prism you look at this through? Is that, you know, can you be bemused by this moment or are you running screaming from the room? (laughs) You know, it's just like life. Um, And the other scene, uh, I mean, there's comedy throughout the episode, but the other big comic scene or sequences are the scenes with Dan Stevens acting opposite himself. (laughs) Um, Was there a challenge to create comic timing between an actor and himself? Like when there isn't, you said uh, Jermaine Clement and Bill Irwin could act off each other. Dan couldn't have done that because he, there wasn't another person to act off of. So was it a challenge to create that comic timing? Through technology, he could. (laughs) He could. Uh, I discussed it at length with Dan about how he wanted to attack it because it was a tremendous uh, challenge for him. Uh, And we used it in the chalkboard sequence as well as the, you know, the two selves trapped in the coffin. Where we landed well, first we decided, Dan and I just, you know, came to it together, and then we went back to Noah, and Noah loved it and completely agreed, but we definitely agreed that the rational side of David's mind would be British. Right. As, as I think maybe perhaps the rational side of all of our brains are, <laughs> are, are British, that collected, you know, calm, uh, erudite, you know, very linguistically brilliant uh, selves. So what we decided to do, uh, I mean, we discussed it at length, but I, I said to Dan, wouldn't you like to act opposite your other character um, so that you're timing and you can really interact and you can just so, – so we recorded all of British David, okay. all of Rational David, and had that recorded, and then we recorded all of uh, regular David, uh, normal David, coming to grips with uh, all this new information. And uh, our sound team, our brilliant sound team, and especially our playback uh, artist, uh, Valerie, had found a tiny, tiny, tiny little earwig that we were able to put in Dan's ear. And so Dan was, you know, whether whoever he was playing, he could completely be in that head and be acting with the the actor playing the other side of him. It was it was tremendously effective. And uh, it took a while for us to, to, to land at that moment and to trust that moment. But in now looking back, I can't think of any other way we uh, you know, could have accomplished that. <laughs> I mean, you say the technology allows it, but I mean, I have seen and I imagine you probably have seen actors op- acting opposite themselves in more and less effectively. And that yeah, kind sometimes of, it can be terrible. Yeah, it can be. And I don't think uh, I would just say... I'm sure the technology makes it much easier, but the technology can't accomplish it by itself, right? It requires both. It requires. Listen, we had the technology, but without a, a you know a brilliant actor like Dan Stevens, it, you know, it, would, it just would have you know it would have been extremely treacherous territory. Right. But because Dan is Dan and, and and such a fully committed actor, and so tremendously focused, um, that he was able to completely inhabit those two different characters 
um, and and not not even you know not even for a second step outside of himself and realize that that voice was coming in through his ear. Right. So I think uh, you know the technology exists, but you know uh, an actor of Dan Stevens' caliber is one in a trillion. So um, <laughs> I mean, and it's his uh, the, the moment when he speaks in a when American uh, David <laughs> speaks in a British accent stands out as particularly funny and effective. Pure Dan, you know, he goes, you know, just like, okay, hello, I'm home, honey, show me some sugar. And then the British Dan goes, wait, so, you're, so your father's British? Which, of course, we we love because that was like an inside reference. That was improv, and it was also a fun reference to Patrick's, you know, Patrick yeah. Stewart. So, so, you know, I mean, this is part of what's fun. With we, You go down the rabbit hole, and it's just endless what you can discover and find. Um, on the topic of the practical logistics, the... Dan Stevens acting opposite Dan Stevens is one major one. There's other practical, there's other moments in this episode where I'm sure uh, our listeners are curious about the practical logistics of how it was done. Um, Mm. I think especially of the scene in David's bedroom and all the actors acting around frozen versions of themselves. How uh, did you go about filming that? Let me first say that there was so much, uh, it was extremely hard. <laughs> and I, I had the pleasure on my episode of doing some high angles of Jermaine conducting in that scene. And it was great because we had to break the set and nobody was happier that that set was getting torn <laughs> apart. Um, that was, it was all so challenging, a tiny little room, you know, eight actors, sometimes nine, 10 actors in that space. We had uh, very, very good doubles of each of the actors. Um uh, but sometimes we had to ask our players to just be completely frozen. Right. We found that the motion control, as difficult and time-consuming as it was, was the more effective way to approach that. Um, there was so much work in that bedroom, and some of the other directors chose to just have the actors freeze. But it does it does have a different quality. They are kind of living and breathing. The motion right. control... Uh, uh, Dane and I much preferred uh, that that aspect of it. So having them interact with their, you know, with their selves was very challenging. We had to be very careful. Uh, it had to be very specific. But you know, that's the beauty of motion control. It's it's a precision instrument, and it repeats exactly. Um, I'm not sure if that was exactly your question. No, that's motion, a great. Motion control was primarily what we're doing in that space. That's basically, what I was wondering because I, when you watch that scene, I as uh, you know someone who knows nothing about making film, only about watching that I can imagine a number of ways of approaching it that seem a whole range of difficulty and plausibility. So, you know, having an actor just stand still or having a CGI uh, um, representation of them that they act around, and it's uh, just interesting to know how you go about it. It was intricate. And listen, sometimes we were able to get away with the frozen. The actor playing Rudy was especially great being frozen. And so we took advantage of that. <laughs> you know, sometimes they froze in these very difficult positions. I think right. when they chose the frozen moment, I think, which was in episode five, uh, which I inherited the frozen moment. And we were like, oh, my God, why did you freeze that way? You know, you're going to have to hold that position for hours and hours. Um so it was uh, it was uh, surgical precision, very careful shot composition, so that sometimes the actors could take a break, and we would single you know we would single Jermaine out, or we'd single out Gene and Bill, and that would give um, all the frozen players a chance to you know 
massage their necks. Right. Now I noticed a lot of the those special effect scenes in the bedroom, and then also uh, we already talked about the chalkboard scene. I noticed a lot of you know unbroken shots moving from one thing that to something else that couldn't possibly be actually there at the same time. Um, right. Those were all motion control shots. Right. But we very much are fans. I mean, we did a fair number of those practically in camera as well. And, uh, you know, we I did have a David double in the chalkboard sequence. You know, like, like yeah, right. I could have him soft focus in the background. Right. Um, motion control is difficult and expensive. And, have, you know, very often on this show, we would look at something and say, well, there's the, you know, extremely expensive feature <laughs> film blue chip version of how we would do this. And then there's the how can we be clever and get some of this in camera? And that was part of the fun. Some of this stuff was done incredibly simply and um you know you'd have to really study the show to sort of understand <laughs> oh there's there's that sheet moment right. but you know as filmmakers that was extremely fun that was a fun part of the challenge like okay how do we get through this obstacle and speaking of the um feature film way of approaching it there's the moment of uh Mackenzie gray walter crumpling up and then you do it twice like that yes it seems to me, watching it, knowing nothing about anything, like an expensive special effect, especially to do twice. How is that uh, shot conceived and how is it implemented? Well, um, of course, it was a composite. We put Mackenzie against a green screen and had him uh, perform uh, the moment. Um, as I first envisioned it, it was going to go even further, that she was going to crush him like a can. Right. And then she was going to do that little flick. And that he would be, he would have been crushed down to just an eyeball. Uh, we, we all really love. I mean, John Ross, our, our VFX supervisor, and I were, were big fans of that. But I think it was it was just uh, a bridge too far, potentially in terms of cost, but also in terms of you know the horrific aspect right. of. So um, you know, we just crushed him down to like a little doll size, and then you know, and then Lenny was able to just go bing. But it was it was simpler than you thought. It was Mackenzie acting against a green screen, and then. You know, John rendering it and doing a bunch of different, you know, layers and layers and layers so that he's, you know, he's literally compressing um, all done in, all done in composite. I think we're coming near the end of the time that you uh, have agreed to talk to us. My last question for you is just where can our listeners look forward to seeing your work next? You mentioned uh, before I even let you answer that, <laughs> I interrupt you to my own question to say you said something about we're doing 10 uh, episodes next season. Does that imply that you're going to be back on Legion next season? There's no guarantee, but, uh, you know, they, they're just starting to to break it down in terms of episodes. So I don't, you know, they haven't assembled their team yet. Okay. I would love, I'd love to go back, of course, and I very much hope I'll be invited back. I think, you know, directors, we frequently say the we, 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 because you get you get incredibly close with teams, the you know, creative teams that you work with. You're, you know, you really get deep in the trenches. So um, you end up walking away from these adventures, you know, very close to everyone you work with. So, of course, we all look forward to gathering again and hope it, hope it comes to pass. Um, to answer your first question, I'm leaving Wednesday for Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, to direct a mini series called Waco, which is yes, that Waco. Um, we're shooting in Santa Fe. I don't think they let us back into Texas to do this, <laughs> but uh, it's a very exciting cast: Michael Shannon playing the FBI negotiator, and Taylor Kitsch playing uh, David Koresh. Uh, we have John Leguizamo. We have Andrea Riceboro, who both of whom were in my bloodline. 
We have a really phenomenal cast. So we're very excited about that. And that is for Spike. And um, so that's what's next. When can we expect to see that? Um, I think that will probably be coming out more in the fall. Look for that on Spike in the in the fall. And then after that, I'm doing uh, Billy Bob Thornton's show, Goliath, on Amazon, which you, if you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to do so. It's marvelous writing, and Billy Bob is luminous in that role. All right, I will. Well, thank you so very much for agreeing to talk to us. This has been a delightful conversation. I'm, I really My appreciate pleasure. it. My pleasure. We and we we appreciate you guys watching. I hope you I hope you enjoy season two. I I'm sure we will. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much. Keep in touch. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. And that was our interview with Denny Gordon. Uh, I had an awful lot of fun talking to her. You've had a chance now to listen to the interview, Jan. What do you uh, think about our conversation? I'm I'm still really disappointed that I couldn't have been there. <laughs> But she's, I love how she provides so many insights into the show and into, uh, especially the silent movie part. I think that was like the biggest revelation in this interview to discover about, uh, about how it wasn't intended to be a silent movie. Yeah. Like that just blows my mind. And obviously it blew your <laughs> mind. Like you couldn't get over it right in the interview itself. No. And, and yeah. we had talked a very little bit, uh, Denny Gordon and I, I have to always call her by her entire name. I don't know, like, <laughs> Denny, we're friends now. Yeah, sure. Denny and I had talked a little bit about the interview and preparing the kind of questions, but she did not give me any hint beforehand about that. She knew I was going to ask about the silent film section, mm-hmm. but she didn't tell me anything beforehand about, yeah. uh, so that was like a bombshell <laughs> to me. And it's, kind of, it's kind of cool to have, like, we watch the show with all these bombshells that get dropped, like King isn't a real dog or whatever, and then we listen to it, we have an interview where we get even more bombshells dropped, and this has been a lot of fun. I love it. We have some more interviews coming up. We have two more people that we're interviewing from the from the behind the scenes of the show. The next one will be next week. We'll be interviewing uh, Jeff Russo, who does the score of the of Legion and the beautiful music, and he has really insightful things to say, and... Uh, I it'll be really good. I was there for the interview with Jeff Russo, but I honestly didn't say very much because I was super nervous. And (laughs) Paul knows way more about music than I do, so I was there, but barely there. And then third interview we we do will reveal later on that's going to be. And I definitely am now comfortable talking to people (laughs) from Hollywood. So yeah, all three uh, exciting things coming ahead in Clockworks. Check out our interview with Jeff Russo next week. Thank you very much for joining us this time, and we'll see you then. I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. If you want to talk to us more about this interview or have some questions that you that were answered in this for you that you thought were cool, uh, give us a shout on Twitter at ClockworksCast or an email, ClockworksCast at gmail.com. As usual, you can support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and directly on Patreon.com slash ClockworksCast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.